0: Hi everybody, I'm George and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest at least, and today's guest is an awesome comedian from across the river in Jersey, you might have seen him host Guilty Pleasures, Joe Moore is here, how's it going Joe? I'm awesome, I'm
1: awesome, I'm doing good, how are you?
0: I'm doing splendid as well, it's a Friday night, looking forward to the weekend.
1: Should we give the listeners an opportunity to tell us how they're doing too? Sure,
0: listeners, how are you today? Oh, nice. Wow. That does sound tough, but we can get through this.
1: <laughs> oh man, I went positive, you went negative. <laughs> well, I went supportive. I went supportive. Yeah, and, well, but we have we have all our bases covered then. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So pick, pick whichever one applies to your situation, <laughs> however you replied. We're good to go. Joe, it's awesome to have you here. You're a huge, huge horror fan. Tell us a little bit about how that all started for you.
1: Very uh, late, late in the game. And you know I think it's weird when I meet people who are like, there seem to be so many people who their affinity for horror movies started when they were so young. I didn't get into it till like high school really. And I, I would argue that's the appropriate time for some of this <laughs> stuff. But but yeah, it was kind of late in the game. I had friends who were really into it. And um, I lived in a really rural town when I was in high school. So when we'd go to a friend's house, you weren't going anywhere. You were just kind of hanging out <laughs> there. So we we would start doing – we kind of naturally started doing horror movie marathons and just watching a bunch of horror movies. And I still keep in touch with those people. I, I did um, a zombie movie marathon just a couple months ago. That was like 18 hours with, just at my friend's house. And wow. Yeah. So – for me, horror movies are very rarely, or at least more often than not, there's something that's like done to a gluttonous degree. Like you just watch way too many at once. <laughs> they lend themselves to that. It's fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially because so many of them, you can be like, Oh, well, I'm just gonna watch the franchise and then that's like 8 to 10 long.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. It's funny, those those big, like, tentpole franchises in horror still are kind of a blind spot to me, um, only because I, I don't think I've ever watched all of those back-to-back, Yeah, you know? And I've seen probably select movies, like, I've seen, like, maybe four or five Friday the 13th movies, but never close enough together to, like, really speak critically about them
0: yeah.
1: you know or like or like even like get to the degree that there is a larger arc you know i miss out on all that
0: stuff but sure well you can take my word for it if you're gonna watch one of them back to back friday the 13th is the one to do yeah i know
1: i've seen the first three of those i've seen jason takes manhattan i haven't seen any any of the, like the... you're missing the whole main trilogy there in the middle of four five six
0: yeah oh man yeah they are good five gets a bad rap but i think it's good so
1: that's all cuz like the the ones that I know he doesn't wear a mask really you know like he's not wearing a hockey mask uh, yeah but those are in those 3 4 5 and 6 are the ones I should check out yeah
0: for sure so there you go all right well I'm calling this podcast a win regardless just <laughs> if I get you to watch those three so this is already going swimmingly joe tell us a little bit about your favorite subgenre you know you said you came to this late is there a subgenre that really helped you kind of get into it and and that's kind of stuck with you?
1: Yeah, probably zombies. It's probably zombies. I think my interest in zombie movies has waned as the number, just the sheer volume of zombie movies sure. coming out has has kind of increased. You know, like they really, we're on like maybe what the fourth or fifth wave of zombie movie You know, like Renaissance, like they just keep coming back, which is... um, Appropriate. Yeah, right? But, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead, when I saw that when I was in high school, like that changed everything for me. Sure. And I think that, you know, zombie movies kind of get a bad rap now. People are kind of sick of them and some of them are really crappy. But uh, the ones that are good, it's just such a fun convention that leaves so much... Up to whoever's telling the story. Zombies are never the same. Yeah. The concept of a zombie, some of them run, some of them talk, some of them fall over, some of them want brains some of them don't. You know, so it's flexible, but it's still comfortable enough that I think it, it leads to really good or it's led to really good movies.
0: Yeah, I also think that zombies in particular tend to be a pretty potent vehicle for commentary. So you can kind of use it to aim a light on whatever you're really trying to talk about. I think Romero in particular did this extremely effectively, but, you know, you do see it in a few other places as well. And and I think that compared to something like witches or vampires or something where it's a little more individualized, the idea of just this faceless horde outside kind of just existing as a, a threat that is easily avoidable in individual numbers, but... It's sort of the mass of it that is the scary part. Um, you know, it, it does lend itself, I think, to creative expression for sure.
1: Yeah, and you're watching people struggle with what to do. Right? There's a direct pressure put on them. They're put in a weird situation. I think that lends itself to the movie that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. How do you react to this thing? I guess in a way, it kind of like takes a lot of the heavy lifting of writing a story out. If you just make the bad guy copies, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, then you're really just kind of focusing on how do these people interact and how are they changing as they get kind of used to the situation?
0: Absolutely. And I think that, that is a splendid segue into our conversation about today's movie, which is *Della Morte, Del Amor also known as Cemetery Man. It is based on the Tiziano sklavi book of the same name, released in 1994, and then in 1996 was when it had its name changed to Cemetery Man and was brought to America. Now, I'm curious, you know, you say you came to this late. How did this movie come to you? Was it in kind of that, like, group experience because this does feel like a movie that is both good for watching as a group, but also there is a lot that you can get out of it watching it alone, I think as well.
1: Yeah, this was at a, it was with, I think I just watched it with one or two friends, but it was at my friend's house. I have one friend who has all the horror movies who I watched all this stuff with for the first time. Yeah, so I watch it with people the first time, but I this might be the movie that I've seen the most in my life. It it rules. Um, Yeah, and just recently, right before you reached out to me to do this, I'd watched it with my wife. Who had seen like three fourths of it, like the you know like the first hour of it, say uh-huh. uh, before, and then saw like bits and pieces here and there, but never had actually sat down and watched the whole thing. And just a couple of weeks ago, we watched this movie in two sittings. We had to split it up because it was late. And I got to experience it, her like losing her mind over how good this is, <laughs> and it it really like reignited my passion for this movie.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a movie that'll do that. I think that it is the perfect kind of earnest where you can really throw yourself behind it and feel good about championing a movie like this. You know, it's not like, oh, gee whiz, the newest Marvel movie sure was good. (laughs) Like, this is like a little thing. Somebody put their heart and soul into this movie. And when you can bring it to people's attention, like you brought it to mine, and like hopefully we're doing now for many other people, you can feel good about that because it is somebody's passion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right that really I'm glad that you made that observation cuz I think I made that but it, I also am aware that there's so much weird stuff in this even by horror movie standards mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of like a goofball like in a way it has screwball elements to it that I think could rub some and and does, right? If you read the responses to this movie online, <laughs> yeah. like there are some real horror heads who just like don't get it or they think like it's cheesy or lame or whatever. And maybe it is, but it still has a pulse. Mm -hmm. I've always felt that there was... This movie's like trying to say something, you know? And like, I never knew that I I quite understood exactly what it was trying to say, but I could appreciate the effort that it was trying to articulate that. I don't know, I guess we'll talk about that throughout the episode because... I worry sometimes. I think I've found some meaning. I remember in college watching this and thinking, like, i got to sit here with, like, a psychology major or, like, a professor who does psychology and who, like, sure. explains some of this stuff <laughs> that I'm seeing.
0: A philosophy major, even.
1: Philosophy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be that would be the right one. Well, I guess both of them. They'll both do yeah, the movie. Sure. But ph- philosophy. I feel like there is some kind of, like, deeper meaning in this movie that I just was not attuned to.
0: Yeah, there definitely is. Uh, it, to me... This is gonna sound maybe a little far-fetched, but this does, to me, strike me similarly as a Lynch movie does, a David Lynch movie, because there is so much of that, clearly it's trying to say something. And a lot of the joy of those movies is in trying to puzzle it out and not necessarily having an answer that you can go look up and say, oh, I got it wrong, or oh, I got it right. The joy is in having different, interpretations of it and seeing what you come away from the movie with and this movie i think does that incredibly well
1: see that's what i needed i needed to watch the movie with you when i was because you (laughs) nailed it yeah i think that's i think you're exactly right like even with a david lynch movie the pieces might not feel like they fit together but the movie still has this Inertia mm-hmm. that it all adds to that it, it like it feels like it makes sense you know it's yeah. kind of like go along with it you you mentioned the book the novelization of della morte della Moore, which is based on that uh, it's an Italian and apparently like a really a popular Italian comic book called
0: Dylan Dog yeah. yes.
1: Which I got my wife got me the trade paperback oh, cool. of that, like the whole collection. He talks about in the comic the character Dylan Dog is like always talking about, or I guess his name is Delmore Day Delmore, but he's um he's always talking about like George Romero movies and like punk rock and metal and shit. <laughs> it's it's cool. It's not totally like what came out in the film, but yeah, I I think that lends itself if you're using that as source material, then it's probably pretty hard to just write like a very simple like three act structure. Yeah, which this. Probably is not.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because the sections of the movie do feel a little vignette-y in that you can kind of see how a comic book influence might create something like that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, But yeah, so Slobby is most well-known for Dylan Dog, which is a long-running Italian comic, not just uh, any little flash in the pan. But his passion for horror runs deep which he attributes to reading the works of Poe as a six-year-old.
1: Oh, yeah, that'll do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That will do it. And I think that it's clear to see that Poe influence in this, because there's a lot of gothic architecture and stuff going on in this movie.
1: Uh, The way that they shoot the cemetery is like... Oh, it's gorgeous. Oh, it's so cool. It has so much personality. And uh, it's just like you could just pause it and kind of like look at it for a while. You know, like it's, it's a beautiful set.
0: Yeah, it really is. And the design of Dylan Dog, the characters that they built in the comic, it was explicitly based on Rupert Everett in the movie Another Country, which makes it particularly interesting that they got Everett himself to play the lead role in Cemetery Man, which does take influence from these comics, as you say, although it it is also based on the novelization. The timeline is a little screwy because he lost the manuscript and then found it later. (laughs) So uh, I'll touch on that in, in a little bit. Uh, but it it gets a little wonky there. Um, and Dylan Dog is about a hard boiled nightmare investigator, is what he calls himself in London, uh, who will just as soon go up against the undead as your garden variety sociopath, while maintaining a constant diet of anti bourgeois rhetoric and surrealism. Perhaps of interest, especially with last week's Conjuring episode, is that James Wan Company Atomic Monster has reached an agreement to make a TV show out of Dylan Dog in 2019. Although who knows what's going on with that now with uh, COVID and everything, but. Who knows? Yeah, could be cool.
1: And also, I, I think if I'm saying it right, Michele Michele Soavi right. was going to try to do a sequel to Dylan Dog at some point in
0: the like mid two thousand oos. You know, like yeah. I, I mean, I'd I'd watch it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing, and you know, I have told people this over the years that I'm sure I didn't make this up. I know I read it somewhere, but I can't find the source. Maybe you discovered it after Rupert Everett. Came to America and made my best friend's wedding in '96 or '97 or whatever. He went back to Suave and was like, "Let's make Cemetery Man again. <laughs> yeah. Let's do Delamorte, Delamore. We can get money. I can do this in Hollywood now. Wow! And let's remake it. And I believe Michele, Michelle, or how I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry, but he um, he was like taking care of his family. Like he had quit the industry for a while there and kind of has like a bunch of years that he took off.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh... You know, kind of a bummer that you have everyone on board except the director at that point, like the 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 lead role. And Rupert Everett just knocks this so far out of the park that it it would feel absurd to come back to it for me and not have him in the role. You know, it it is a a kind of a shame that that uh, turned out that way. But you know, good for him spending time with his family. So, (laughs) and I
1: think as a big horror head. I think one of the things that people overlook about this movie, but you'll appreciate and I think other people should appreciate more. This isn't Soavi's like first maiden voyage. like he had been established in Italian horror cinema. Oh, yeah. he, he's in um, he acts and worked on demons um, among many other things. Oh, yeah. he's, the, he's the guy with the, um, the metal mask who's giving out the tickets to the movie. that's right the beginning of demons big role yeah important good role (laughs) so I, I feel like one of the other things that makes this movie so unique to a horror fan is that it has a foot In the tradition of Argento, Bava, and all that stuff from the Italian, the Italian horror and Giallo stuff, like from the 60s, 70s, even early 80s. Yeah. Because he was part of that, like the tail end of that crew, but it was made in 94, right? So it's like, it's way more mod, it looks slicker than some of that stuff. So it's almost like a throwback, but not really, you know? Yeah. I think you could play that for someone and and just as easily tell them this came out in 1985
0: as (laughs) in 1994, you know? Absolutely. I, oh man, I got a lot to say about this. So <clears throat> I'm actually gonna hold off and I'm gonna say first just that as far as the timeline thing went, yeah, he lost the manuscript because Del- Delamorte Delamore was written years before Dylan Dog. And it wasn't like now where you can say, oh I'll just print up another copy. If you lost the manuscript, <laughs> you fucking lost it, dude. Yeah. And so he took another run at it, adapting uh, adapting the book into Dylan Dog, and then finding the manuscript again. And now that he had the success with the comics leveraged that cachet into publishing Della Morte, Della Moore. And so it's interesting to see how the foundation was there with Francesco Della Morte being sort of a test run for Dylan and his hordes of zombies to fight and a little comic relief sidekick. You know, it is clear to see how one became the other and then like a feedback loop of the comics leading back into the movie version of it.
1: Yeah. I you know, I'll have to find that book. Do you know if the book's even available?
0: It looked like it was out of print when I looked. I didn't look too hard because I just didn't have a chance, but it looked like it was out of print.
1: I would imagine based on how hard it is to find a copy of this like I I, I know my D V D copy of it sells on Amazon for like a hundred bucks. Like it's just hard to find the movie itself. I can't imagine they're still shucking around the book.
0: Yeah. Vinegar syndrome. The people are clamoring. For a cemetery, man. Yeah. Let's go. Restore it.
1: I I guess I just assume someone's trying to bury it, you know, like someone doesn't like it or...
0: Hmm, Seems possible. So we said uh, Rupert Everett plays Francesco Della Morte. Uh, Francois Haji lazaro plays his assistant Nagi in a very difficult and thankless role, I think. He is so crucial to this movie being a sounding board for Della Morte to, to have someone around. And he does so much physical comedy And doesn't get to verbalize very much. It's a very hard role to not fall just completely off the cliff.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, you have this character of the guy who's shooting the zombies in the head and like, you know, he's like very brooding and moody. Nagi shows you his heart, you know, like Mm -hmm. Nagi's presence. You're like, all right, well, this guy cares. He's not totally uncaring. And like, I I really, you need it. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like the foundation upon which the character kind of lives.
0: Absolutely. And our third main character is model-turned-actress Anna Falchi, who plays she a woman who appears a few times in various forms. Now, to get into this giallo thing, because there is some debate about the definition of giallo, in terms of some people demand that it specifically be a murder mystery, and some have taken the more literally translated definition of the Italian word, which is yellow, to indicate a more expansive genre of just pulpy Italian horror. I tend to fall on the latter side, but... Suspiria is the most well-known example of this debate, with pedants saying that the witch element takes it out of the category, despite other tenets of the genre being adhered to. But this movie also falls into that discussion, and is exacerbated by uh, Michel Soavi's previous work, Stage Fright, the movie he did before this, being a through-and-through through giallo, that mm-hmm. is absolutely one, um, as well as his his previous work as an assistant director, as you say, for... Uh, Horror icons Dario Argento on Tenebrae, Phenomena, and Opera, and Lamberto Bava on Demons, A Blade in the Dark, and Blast Fighter. And what makes this so interesting to me is that Argento and Solave share a lot of similarities, including the disregard for strict adherence to logic, uh, an adoration of gutter art, and fanciful presentation style, but... Where they differentiate Is that Argento Punctuated his moments Of surreal horror With a like Childish delight In blood and guts So Avi kind of Utilizes the flip side Of the coin With like Edgy humor And an exploitation Sensibility towards sex Serving as the Catharsis reset While balancing The visual imagination Instead of the guts That uh, Argento is so famous for
1: Yeah right This movie is not Surprisingly When you describe What this movie is It sounds like It should be so much Gorier Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel Very gorgeous gross you know it's not a gross out movie
0: it has a lot of fantastical elements that i think are really interesting and all of the designs instead of being like bloody are fantastical they have like the roots of the ground like emerging from the corpses and stuff and they look so fun and it's not about like oh god i can't look at these things because their intestines are falling out and they're tripping over them it's oh, wow, I love looking at these zombies because they are just fascinating. Yeah. I think because of this uh, exploitation sensibility, it is a little easy for people to write this movie off, but... There are deceptive depths to it, which we've already sort of alluded to, and this is basically the way that the public reacted to it, is some people were able to understand what the movie was putting down, and some people just took it at surface value, said, oh, there's all kinds of stuff that I find personally distasteful, and I'm just not going to engage with it it uh, on a deeper level that said it did brisk local business thanks to its controversial feeling and became a bit of a cult hit, although in a more traditional definition of cult hit than the modern one in that it was still fairly underground.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could see, and I, I think sometimes if you show this to a certain group, you know, like, I mean, there's, it's got a lot of the same elements that a movie I would describe as sleazy has, (laughs) <laughs> I would not describe this movie as sleazy, though.
0: It, it's interesting because it has the stuff in it, but doesn't really revel in it. You know, it's not it's not like rolling around in 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 the stuff. There is a rape; it happens off screen. In so so many movies of even a decade prior. Uh, to this movie, especially Italian ones, that would have absolutely been front and center. But considering the sort of tone of this movie, it is pretty surprising how tastefully some of the more shocking elements are handled.
1: Well, and you know, I think it's like, it's really focusing your, what I like about the movies that i just told from the perspective of Della Morte, Della morte, right? So it's like all of that stuff serves to either excite or put down that character. Yeah. And- I think all of that stuff that would that would kind of rub people the wrong way is done to to a degree for like dramatic effect like story effect and I mean I won't decide whether or not it's those subjects are handled tastefully because that's different from person to person. Sure. But I feel like the sum of the parts makes for this incredible story that I I couldn't imagine you take any of these pieces out. You know, like, it it wouldn't be the same.
0: Totally, totally. Like I said earlier, the movie was brought to America in 1996 by October Films, and when they went to screen it for press, one of the journalists was like, I already rented this on VHS from Kim's. (laughs) 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 And so they sent out a bunch of people to try and rent it from a few locations, and they weren't able to, but not because Kim's didn't have the movie, it was because it was just that it was so popular that they didn't have it in stock, it was just rented out everywhere already.
1: In in that era, this is like perfect VHS. You put this, the picture for this movie, next to any other, you know what I mean? Hmm. And you're like, that's the one I'm taking. It just, it's it's called Cemetery Man, (laughs) so... It sells itself, you
0: know? It sure does. And it turns out that Kim's had gotten Japanese imports of the movie, and so they got hit with a dang cease and desist to try and get all these people wanting to see it into the theaters when it released on April 26th in 1996. Now, I didn't see any budget or box office information, but as far as reception, it has continued to grow from underground because while it's not a movie for everyone, uh, you know, I think that... This feels like the people who are meant to find it, find it. You know, this is something that feels like a movie you have to recommend to someone. You know, you say, I know your taste. I know you will get this movie. You should check it out. Um, And if you need further proof that it's a good movie, Marty Scorsese called it one of the best Italian movies of the 90s.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think too, like I I, I was saying before, how like it, it has these sleazy elements that would rub a certain audience the wrong way. I think the opposite is also true, that when you bring this to like the hardcore, Or, like, the guys who really love horror movies that are, like, gritty and gory and gross and stuff. Sure. This movie might confuse them because it's got so much heart. It's so delicate in the way that it tells the story. You know, it's a love story in a
0: way. Uh, Yeah. Almost more than... In many ways. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, To get into the actual movie, there's an absolutely fantastic-looking opening. I love this pull-out from the skull to find Francesco Della Morte, answering the phone depressedly before pausing promptly blowing the head off of a zombie and going back to the call like nothing happened while the camera shows us the graveyard that he's the caretaker of. It's gorgeously composed with tight spacing, plenty of fog to go around. (laughs) You know, it not only looks good, but it's an excellent intro to Francesco's character. It does so much so quick.
1: Yeah, and we, when my wife and I were trying to watch it recently, uh, one of the Ways that we found it was that it is on YouTube, but it was the image was flipped. Right when I, it starts with that scene of the skull and the phone cord is coming from the skull, right? So like, like really driving home that theme of the movie of like from death life, you know, what mm-hmm. I mean? like mm-hmm. from the skull is the voice who he's talking to is the phone. It being flipped immediately from that, I was like, turn it off, like, <laughs> and I didn't realize it until that moment. But it, I mean, it's it is beautiful. The, I'm going to sound like a like a jerk here because I. But the maze mise en
0: scène, mm. yeah,
1: it, it counts. It's everything is painted in this movie, and to see it reverse was just like a bastardization of it.
0: This is a movie where it is so carefully composed. You can see how much work went into it. That even just flipping it makes a big difference. Uh, he shakes up a snow globe with two little uh, replica guys of him and his assistant in there. While the opening credits roll over some fun music, very classic horror-feeling music that plays over these opening credits. And out he goes to rouse that assistant, Nagi, who is, shall we say, not all there. Speaking simply in the word, nah. (laughs) while they put the recently re-deceased back in his grave... A nearby sapling gives way as another zombie comes for them before getting spaded in the head. And this is where Delamorte muses about the zombies, or returners as he calls them, while he assembles a skull-shaped puzzle. And he said that he doesn't know what causes it, or why it affects some and not others, or even if it happens all over versus localized to Buffalora, but in the end, who cares? All he knows is that some people rise from the grave seven days after they die. Here's my pitch. Maybe start by not having a giant inscription that reads Resurrectus. Yeah. Uh, feels like asking for trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: The next day, though, he develops a fascination with a mourner who is the most beautiful living girl he'd ever seen. Very specific <laughs> uh, distinction there. Uh, unnamed but played by Anna Falci, like we said, burying what he assumes is her father but is, in fact, Her former husband, and a fantastic lover, as she makes sure Francesco is aware. She ignores him moving forward until he mentions the cemetery's ossuary, and for those who are unaware, an ossuary is a final resting place for older, bare bones that have been removed from graves in places where space is at a premium, and the tunnels under Paris are the most famous example, probably. Uh, Those are spooky.
1: Yeah, you know, there's lines in there, even in those scenes, that it just recently so I you know like I've probably seen this movie like 20 times or so just recently I was like, oh are they like playing for jokes here like is he <laughs> like when he says the most beautiful living woman I've ever seen he says it so convincingly that i I, I'm, I was never really entirely sure if this stuff is jokes um there's a couple of lines throughout the movie that I think are definitely like they sound like something you would expect a stand-up to say, you know, like the, um, I'm not a biology major. I've only read two books, one I didn't finish and the other's a phone book. Right. It sounds like a, that's a joke. That's a, that's yeah. a, it's a pretty, it's an okay joke. Uh, you know, like hacky, whatever. Um, but I never laugh at it. I never think mm. of it as a joke.
0: Yeah. His deadpan delivery is so part and parcel of Delamorte Delamore, because it really keeps you off balance, I think, and you are constantly questioning what's a joke, what's sincere, the same way that we're constantly questioning what's real, what's not, you know, how much of this is really going on, how much of it is in his head, how much of this is intended how much of it is pure lucky happenstance that they stumbled over this you know it's that, that, that questioning nature of it keeps it feeling fresh and exciting you know
1: Yeah that, that opening that you know that you you were just talking about like that throws you into the ocean of this movie. Right. Like mm-hmm. they, when they build the relatable world or the beginning world of the movie, it's not really that relatable to us. So it's really hard to get a sense of what is grounding. And that's what I, one of the things I love about this movie, I, I remember someone saying about the movie Heathers. Have you seen Heathers? Yep. Heathers is a movie that it almost like takes place in an alternate universe, right? Fashion and the the phrases that they say so vary and stuff like that. It really, all, it doesn't exist. It's not like the things in our world. Yeah. It's similar to them. We have similar things. Sure. But in, in that movie world, it's so unique. And I feel like this movie does that too, where it's like, I, I always tell people, Cemetery Man feels like it was made in a universe where no other horror movie existed. So they could just do whatever they wanted to. There was no convention for horror movies, really. Yeah, And it becomes like almost self-referential later in the movie. And maybe because of that, maybe because there is no grounding to our reality, that the jokes don't feel like jokes. Like they wouldn't serve as jokes. It's just what this guy feels. At his, yeah. It's his honest
0: truth, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She loves this ossuary, and with both their heads sheathed in veils, they smooch a whole bunch. <laughs> and she retreats, but as she flees, her outfits get caught on some skeletons, again, sort of this uh, from death comes life and vitality kind of uh, thing, and it's like, oh, well, is the ossuary pushing her to have sex, as she claims? Or is it just she got caught on it and she's using this as as an excuse because it's what she really wants to do. And her her dress tears as she runs out with just an undergarment on. And, and, you know, it's it's quite a sight as, as she flees the scene. He does follow her, though. And a bunch of spirits in the form of airborne blue flames just look... Amazing, and they surround him. This is such a fun little touch that is so incredible. Like it just looks fantastic in this movie, and also like never really explained. Are they are they
1: spirits? Is that what they are?
0: That was what I took from what he said about like having like witnesses. Is that this was like the spirits uh, of the dead mm. kind of watching and and coming together to see to see this celebration of life kind of thing. You imagine
1: because of. The character that we've set up for Delamorte Delamore, even by this point, like he's not going to be phased by anything. But she's not even that phased. Like she's almost like grabbing them out of the sky. Like she's caressing them as they're flying around.
0: Yeah. She, she just doesn't want them watching because she wants a little privacy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he blows one out and then they all s- scatter.
0: Yeah, that was fucked up. <laughs> he kills that guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't know
1: that they were they were souls or I even considered them souls. I just thought they were just like weird things. You know, like again, like this movie is just it's so its own thing.
0: Yeah. And you know, this looks amazing, but they meet under the light of an enormous moon. This is also incredible looking set design. This the way that they shoot the moon in this movie is Outrageous, yeah. In the
1: like in that pool, and they pull back, and then they show like that like that castle that's there. Like I want to build one for my yard so bad. I, yeah, I'm trying to figure out a way to build this <laughs> castle like that.
0: Oh, that would be rad. But these two come together once again. This time, consummating their love on top of her husband's grave because she never kept anything from him.
1: Did you pick up on the the? And this, I believe, to be a joke. And it took me a couple viewings. Did you pick up the picture? His picture?
0: No, I don't think so. Okay,
1: I, well, I'm going to ruin it for you and the listener too. But the picture changes based on what's happening in the scene. Oh it's my god! Like when they're when they're actually doing it, he's making a face like an, like a. But in the beginning, he's just, like, smile. He he makes, like, a regular face, I think, in the beginning. It's, like, three times it changes. When she talks about how he was a fantastic lover, he's, like, smirking in the picture. And then when they're doing it, he's, like, making a, like, hey, knock that off face.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Love that. As they have sex, old hubby himself, he says, hey, stop that. And he rises from his grave, and he bites her arm before being dispatched by Delamorte. And as she fades, she says... Not even death will separate us, will it, my love? And, you know, this is where you see sort of this, the flame that he blew out kind of relates to their passion of, like, how quickly it was ignited, but then blown out so quickly as well.
1: Yeah.
0: he It looks like she has perished. And when the doctor comes to check, he says that she had a heart attack while they were having sex. And so he knows that it wasn't. De La Morte, because there's a rumor going around town that De La Morte is impotent, that he himself started this rumor, or he, so he claims, because he wanted to cement his outsider status. You can never be too different, Nagi, as he says. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It introduces subtly a very specific aspect of these zombies- which is that sometimes they talk. But mm. right? he says like, "That's life" when he's biting the <laughs> Which is like such a such a weird, goofy, goofy element to add to any zombie. But you know, again, it, like you don't care. You know, I don't question sure. it. It doesn't throw me off.
0: Yeah, there are a few times in this like in my notes where I wrote for some reason and every time it's not a for some reason of like I'm annoyed by this it's a for some reason of I don't care what the explanation is because it's fun and they're having a good time with it and so am I uh the town's detective who doesn't believe Della Morte doesn't suspect her in his death like I said but Della Morte is lingering near her corpse in case it becomes a returner and when she awakes he pops her in the head Very sad for him. He's very upset by this. Nagi and Della Morte run into the mayor, and Nagi is immediately smitten with Valentina, his daughter, played by Fabiana Formica. And this is, again... You know, I said that he puts in a lot of these uh, funny per- physical performances here, but this scene where he just, like, boils until he pukes on her from excitement is so funny, and it's, like, you, I can't believe I'm watching a human being in these moments. Yeah,
1: predates South Park by a couple years, too, I think, so so they, they did it first. That's right. But, yeah, I, I mean, you said it was thankless. You know, that, that that role. And I think it really is. But, like, man, the moments he gets to shine, he really takes advantage of. Like, he does oh, such yeah. a great job with Nagi. <laughs> uh,
0: she thinks that he's sweet. But the puke does understandably upset her. So off she rides on a motorcycle with Claudio. We get a look here at Francesco's hobby, too, which is updating the phone book by crossing out the names of dead people. <laughs> which is... <laughs> That's a a great, great hobby. Good for you, I guess. Yeah,
1: it's so funny.
0: (laughs) And he tries to comfort Nagi by saying they all end up here sooner or later anyway. And often... Sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah, the two of them it, like they feel more like um, summer camp roommates in that scene. Yeah. You know, Nagi's downstairs like inconsolable, and he's up there like trying to do this like bullshit. Like, <laughs> what the, like, what even is he doing? Crossing names out of the like matching it with the obituary and crossing it out of the phone book. <laughs> you don't do that, not you know. I mean, I haven't in years.
0: Not since <laughs> summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's coming back. Everything from the '90s is coming back. Fanny packs and crossing the names out of out of phone books <laughs> cut to though sooner rather than later indeed a horrific motorcycle accident where her head gets popped right off <laughs> by a bus hitting the bike on a turn which sends the bus over a cliff while carrying a load of boy scouts on a church outing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like does
1: it even? No, you read those words. You say those words out loud. Does that even feel like that even happens in this movie? Like after you watch it, like it just like it's it's so matter of factly, I guess, and like so not sensationalized. I mean, you see a motorcycle get hit by a, a bus, you know, but like it's just so like quick, quick, and then
0: yeah, it's the next thing. It, it really is. This movie is so packed full of stuff because I would when I was like taking these notes I w- kept looking at the movie and being like how is there only like 20 minutes left in this movie it feels like there's so much going on still Yeah um and they really they make the most out of it but uh I also loved uh this there's some great lines here where he's like oh we're going to need a lot of bullets Yeah get a, get a
1: lot of you get a lot of
0: bullets There's also a great song about the Boy Scouts picnic That's happening Awesome
1: I'm glad you picked up on that cuz I missed it the first like 12 times I saw this movie and then one time while watching it and, and you know what a joy when you think you know a movie right <laughs> and you're watching and you're like wait what did they just say? you like rewind and yeah they're singing this song like never should have gone on the Boy Scouts picnic
0: <laughs> won't go on it again yeah,
1: now I'm gonna live in a
0: marble tomb or whatever like <laughs> Ah, oh, great, great song. That's going to be my ringtone moving That's, forward, they're, like, think,
1: yeah, they're, they're serving as pallbearers at the funeral for the Boy Scouts who died, and they're singing this song about the dead Boy Scouts. It's like so silly
0: yeah and there's a cool little foreshadowing moment here where we see the shadow of the grim reaper uh, as francesco is walking and it looks like it's moving but cemetery decorations don't move so what could it be <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he's attacked in the shower by several returners and has to fend him off while nagi is distracted with his headphones on fantastic practical head explosions here I have a letterbox list where I keep track of movies with practical head explosions, and I was delighted to add this to it. Oh yeah, the Boy Scouts when he's shooting him in the bathroom and like, and yeah.
1: now this marks the change in the story though because right they come back really quick. They don't wait seven days, right? Right. So something's like picking up.
0: Yeah, sure is. And Claudio bursts from the grave on his motorcycle, which is got to be a top ten sentence. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, I love that, like I said, a bunch of them have roots and stuff entangled in their bods, but he's kind of gone like Tetsuo the Iron Man a little yeah. bit here because of the bike.
1: Yeah, he's got like the, the... Is it like a brake light or something that's like in his eye? Like there's like a blinking light?
0: Yeah, and he's got like a big something metal sticking out of his wrist yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. It's a cool costuming job there. Yeah. Francesco takes him out, though, and his still living but inconsolable lover and starts to muse about how the living and the dead are the same, really. So why does it make sense that you're in trouble if you kill the living, but it's his job to kill the dead?
1: He's just eating me. Claudio.
0: (laughs) Claudio, say you love me, Claudio.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she and like so so we're talking about Rupert Everett, right? Rupert Everett rules, he does a great job in this movie. Where did they find her? She was amazing. She yeah. did she is like in a way like almost over the top and almost cartoonish, but in a way that fits the movie. Like she's yeah. so so good in that role.
0: Yes, uh, Katya Anton is her name mm. playing the role of Claudio's girlfriend.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean like every, even the, the chief of police is like he's so good. The mayor is so good, like everyone just like understood what they were doing, you know, like mm hmm. They got it. And they ended up making this movie that I think puzzled so many people. It's, it's strange.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does seem like they all really understood what was trying to be accomplished here, which is not always the case. And one person not getting it can really sink a movie like this.
1: And, and I, think, I think that's my biggest gripe with some of those, like, the Bava's and Argento's movies is, like, um, when you see these actors who just aren't convincing they're not selling it you know they're not really trying very hard it's very stiff um and you know i mean in some cases you know are they even actors have they acted before
0: yeah i think that some of that conflict also comes into play because they know that they're going to be dubbed over. So they're probably not putting their, their strongest foot forward in the, in the recording part of it. So.
1: Yeah. But in this one, I mean, the director did a great job of getting the getting the performances from the actors that like, it just, it feels, and I, I don't even, I don't speak from anywhere where I can say it's great acting. I could see where someone would be like, oh, it's not subtle or it's not nuanced or whatever but like god it makes for such it's so fun to watch it makes for such a good movie and it is it it fits this world it fleshes this world out
0: yeah absolutely it might not be like you said a nuanced performance but that's not what is trying to happen Like, they're not trying to make it a nuanced character they're trying to make characters that fit the environment, yeah. and they absolutely do. And in that case, it's a huge success.
1: You know, like to go to an actress who's like a, probably a teenager and be like, "All right, your boyfriend is a zombie on a bike, <laughs> and you are so enamored with him." And she does it like that. Yeah, it, that's just so. I don't know. I appreciate she sells it so the big
0: much. time. Yeah, yeah. Nagi is still in love with Valentina, and so he digs her up and he takes out her severed head, who remembers him fondly, and he smooches the head. Which somehow follows him as he happily fiddles and walks away, and <laughs> just what a scene! What a scene!
1: Fiddles. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, Nagi has this like weird, like trapezoid.
0: I don't know what's going on with that thing. But it is one of a few moments where we see that Nagi is maybe not as dumb as he appears. You know, he has this musical talent because he is very good when he's playing this fiddle. We also see him put together the skull puzzle here, no problem, while Francesco struggles with it. And it is a really nice moment for him to have this success, especially since the rest of the movie, he's very much the butt of the jokes. Mm.
1: Yeah, well, he's also an excellent chef.
0: Well... (laughs)
1: It's like spaghetti sandwiches. Spaghetti, spaghetti
0: sandwiches. with bananas, yeah, like, which is truly one of the most disgusting things I can imagine. Oh, uh,
1: there's people that do it. There's got to be people like ke- you know keto, keto diet or whatever. Like it's, the, I don't know. It's the, don't know. all their all their vitamins in one. I don't.
0: Know. I think keto. They wouldn't be able to eat the pasta. Yeah, <laughs> put a pretty big right. cramp. What's the uh, what, some other weird one? Someone's doing mm. that. <laughs> Someone's
1: right. putting banana on pasta.
0: Listener, if you put banana on on spaghetti and you eat it. Tell us what that's like. (laughs) Francesco is drawn outside by a noise where he finds a scrap of fabric that gives him pause. We also get an incredible shot here where it looks like the earth from space with the moon in the background. And the camera dips, revealing it to be a sculpture. It just takes your breath away. It's such a beautiful looking shot that in a movie that is so puzzling... For it to constantly be putting in these incredible set designs and these incredible camera movements, it really, I think, lends a lot of credence to when you say, I think that these jokes are jokes and intentional. Because there is so much intentionality in the rest of the movie as well. Right. So the moon is rippling in the puddle as well. And then the reveal, Francesco's lover has risen from the grave, which means that the previous time, she was actually still alive. And he's the one who killed her when he shot her big moment for him to sort of deal with this. And they smooch as she sneakily discards his gun and then bites open his shoulder before Nagi rescues him with a shovel. And this is another really fun scene where we've seen that they can come back. We've seen that they can remember people. But for her to come back and manipulate him and use this uh, memory to her advantage to get a meal is a fun little twist on what's just happened with nagi
1: yeah and with nagi you're like grossed out you're like oh that's why was he keeping that head uh, blah, blah. But then when it happens to Morte, you're like well he's not gonna kill her right. it's, it's love it's true love they gotta stay be together
0: yes and he he reckons with this and the implication of the bite wondering if this means that he'll come back as a returner as well and he also wonders if nagi will kill him then says, no, he wouldn't be brave enough to split my skull. And then meanwhile, out comes Nagi, ready to jump the gun and do it before he even comes back. One interesting philosophical question that gets gestured at by this movie that I didn't really see discussed anywhere when I was looking at how people felt about the movie is the old woman that we've seen around the movie a bunch. I haven't really talked about her, but she's shown up a few times. She asks what picture she should use for her grave. And it's one old photo and one young photo. And I think that this is a very succinct way of asking, like, what is the real you? How do you sum up a life? How do you want to be remembered? It's just a really fascinating moment that they they move past so quickly, but it raises so many interesting questions for me. And he says the both of them, right? He says, you- yeah, he says put them both up, yeah, because you are a complete person, and one might not represent you completely. Wow, yeah. Oh man, I'm
1: still learning things about this movie after thinking about it as much as I have. I, I'm worried when we get to the points that I'm going to like talk about the philosophical connections that I've made with this film. I'm going to sound totally nuts, right? Because it's like <laughs> it's like I, I don't I don't have a background in that, and I don't feel like I speak with any authority on it. I don't know.
0: We're that. just movie fans. Just, We're mo- just movie just, fans.
1: Just movie fans. But I feel like I've watched this. It's almost like someone who can't see the seeing eye at the mm. museum store at the mall, the Brookstone at the mall, but stands in front of it for like two hours and is like, oh yeah, I see what it is. <laughs> like, I feel like that's what my takeaways from this movie are, where it's like, wow. I'm just an idiot, but I've, <laughs> I've looked at this movie waiting for it to tell me the answer that I might have like thrown an answer together. <laughs> makes no sense. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. So
0: stay tuned, folks. <laughs>
1: Something to look forward to.
0: It's
1: getting hot now. We're
0: cooking. In his depression, the flaming ashes that he's been uh, working on take the form of the Grim Reaper in an absolutely delightful skeleton prop. Folks, you know I love a skeleton, and this is no exception. Uh, The Reaper tells him, hey, stop killing the dead. Those are mine. If you want to stop them coming back to life, kill the living by shooting them in the head and skip a step. Bleak. But that's just, that's the scene.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and almost like, well, I don't know, I guess you're going to tell us. It it feels like that is like, they almost could have cut that scene out. Like, that scene doesn't really, I mean, I guess, you know, what happens to him after that is significant. There is a significant change at some point. But I never really felt like that's where the change took place, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't seem to address any, well, it does answer a question in a way. It doesn't really address any of the questions that I had for the movie at that point, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, it uh, it is funny. It does seem like it kind of just comes out of nowhere. And, and there are a few scenes that are good, and I don't want them to cut them. But it does feel like with a stricter editor, perhaps they would have been excised. And I think that this movie functions together incredibly well. It does not feel like it's long. And it's only an hour and 47 or whatever to start with. So it clips along at that pace. And, you know, I I like getting these little character moments that don't necessarily advance the plot forward or, or answer these questions. And I think that it shows a confidence in the character and in your actors to be able to make these feel like they fit the movie, even if it isn't. You know, okay, we need this to set up this or or move this B plot forward or whatever.
1: Yeah, and, and it, I, I should say I don't think it needs to be cut. I would not cut right. anything cut this. <laughs> I think this movie is perfect. I think that that
0: best horror movie ever made.
1: The character, the best, the best horror movie ever made. I think the um the uh the character of the the death is perfect. Like you said, it looks badass. It's so cool. Yeah. And like in theory, right? That's the point in the movie when that has to happen. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it in another movie, and in like something that could be a blockbuster, you know, or more of a mainstream movie, there's a little bit more emphasis on that scene. Yeah, and in this one, it's just like everything else, you know,
0: like it's, it just you know, happens. Yeah, it just
1: happens, and <laughs> then you just roll on. But I love. Yeah, I think that I, I'm saying this in a positive sense, I <laughs> wish more movies were like this, kind of like head scratchers.
0: Yeah, it, it is an interesting surrealism to feel like nothing is given more weight than anything else, really. You know, the there are these moments where there's like, oh, they're looking up at the moon and he gets attacked by his lover. But a lot of these moments that aren't uh, so integral get treated completely neutrally yep. like this. It's just a conversation between these two. And they're never like... Oh, this is in his head and he's going crazy. Or, oh, this is straight up him talking to the Grim Reaper. There's no indication either way. It's just a scene that happens and you have to just let it pass through you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and with this stuff and like, even when you were talking about the the moon and the earth and you think it's a space shot, right? Like those feel like so stylized and like they do look beautiful but I could see where someone – if you describe it to someone, outside of the context of actually seeing it, uh, someone might say that feels like amateur, like a high school <laughs> film student you know, would make sure. a movie of – like, ooh, look, it's in a pond. and you know, like, <laughs> But it, I think it's done so well. It's so tasteful and it's so cool. Is this the one comic book movie that Scorsese wow. likes? <laughs> Scorsese likes – he hates the comic book movies, but he likes – this one.
0: This is it, folks. We found the one. Marty not only likes it, called it one of the best Italian movies of the '90s. So the
1: next time one of these are one of these writers is, is interviewing him and starts bugging him about Spider-Man and shit, I hope someone stands up and is like, eh, excuse me, <laughs>
0: Mr.
1: Scorsese, uh, <laughs> tell me about Cemetery Man. Then how does that fit <laughs> your argument?
0: <laughs> yeah, get these Marvel guys. Tell them to come back when they read some Dylan Dog. <laughs> Everyone feels stuck in Buffalo, and he says, who knows if the rest of the world even exists? I feel like a fly on flypaper, and that's Franco says that, and that's, Franco is uh, Francesco's best friend, and we've seen him a little bit here and there, but again, they're in these scenes where it doesn't feel necessarily uh, adhered to the main plot, but does still have a lot of great like ripple effects that come through the entire thing.
1: There's a, a scene earlier where they actually meet for the first time. And he says he has to go see him every now and then because they just talk on the phone. So right, we assume that they're like friends kind of like by circumstance, maybe because it doesn't seem like they have too much in common. And they don't even seem like that friendly to each other. But he's talking to what is what does Franco do?
0: Uh, municipal Something or other Yeah,
1: some kind of like Bureaucratic <laughs> thing He's talking to About a raise, right? Though Morte is asking about a raise And he's like trying to find The form for him or whatever
0: Yeah, he wants him to get The uh, M3 form, I believe
1: Yeah, I always wondered By the end of the movie That character Feels like it evolves a lot The character of Franco
0: Well, I wonder if it's because Through it all The connection that they felt Is this desperation And feeling like they're trapped And I think that they think That they're the only ones Who understand each other mm. And I think that when we talk about what Franco does towards the end of the movie, that feels like boiling over in the same way that what happens to Francesco feels like a natural boiling over. There, there is
1: somewhere, there is a mainstream, not horror, well, probably horror movie, but not quite horror movie the way we think of horror movies, uh, Franco story. Yeah. You know, like there's there's definitely a, ver- a story to be told there that I think probably would, would be a little bit... More of a successful story than in Cemetery Man.
0: Yeah. Hashtag Francophiles. (laughs) Sound off. (laughs) So Francesco dreams that night of going on a shooting rampage before being woken up the next day by the inspector. And it seems there was indeed a rampage in town with seven dead. And they saw Francesco's car, but the inspector thinks that it was actually Nagi. When Francesco goes to get Nagi for questioning, he sees the head of the daughter down there, before the mayor shows up and says, please dig up my daughter for the grimmest and most cynical campaign poster ever. This scene is really something where he's like talking at length about like, people are upset that everyone's dying. So I need to dig up my daughter and say, look, I'm grieving too. If you've ever lost anybody, elect me.
1: Yeah. Someone who grieves with you or, or grieves too. Yeah.
0: Something like that.
1: What a scumbag.
0: Scumbag indeed. and, This presents an issue because they're shocked by the lack of head in the grave. And then she calls for him, leading the mayor to Nagi's den, where she asks for his permission to marry Nagi. He refuses, so she attacks him. In another sort of somehow, but (laughs) it's fucking awesome moment where she, yes, very house, she (laughs) flies out and rips out his throat. It's just awesome. (laughs) Della Morte does shoot the head But now there's just two corpses... And Nagi is devastated. The new mayor comes to follow up on a form that Francesco's only friend, Franco, filed for him, explaining the epidemic. I like how succinctly the new mayor, like, sums it up reading off the sheet there. Yeah. <laughs> and Francesco signs a denial, saying that nothing ever happens anyway. And the mayor says, it's for the best, You'd lo- or we'd look dumb, and you'd lose your job. Which is exactly what Francesco feared from the start. The new mayor's assistant is also played by Falchi. The woman who played the widow he falls in love with her again as she experiences deja vu but she confesses that she's phobic of penetrative sex so she can only love an impotent man which is convenient for him in the short run in that he has started this rumor that it's the case to help him cement his status there as an outsider but is inconvenient in the long run because it is in fact a lie they agree to get married And Francesco demands that the local doctor remove his penis. The giant implement that he pulls out is so funny. Yeah. Uh, But the doctor just can't do it. And so he convinces Francesco to agree to a shot that will render him impotent for over a month at a time. And this results in an agonizing needle and penis sequence. You know, it's left to the imagination, uh, but it's still plenty vivid. And I think that this is a great example of what you were talking about earlier, where... It's not necessarily that lascivious, but it is, you know, letting your brain do the work of like these really gross things. This guy's getting stabbed in the penis head with a friggin' huge needle.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you and you feel for the character. And that that scene is almost like shot so differently, like it almost feels like of a different movie, like it's kind of slapsticky the way that he's like fumbling with the (laughs) the doctor can't help can't bring himself to do it, you know, like
0: Yeah. It's fun, though, and it's interesting that this is one of the first times we ever see Francesco really showing any emotion as well. Yeah. Lots of uh, great lines along the way here, like uh, X in response to the zombie mayor saying, I'm the mayor, and, uh, I mean, that's just a great line. First of all, for the zombie mayor to say, I'm the mayor, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) And then for Francesco to have, like, a fun one-liner, also fantastic. You know, these are like I said, scenes that don't necessarily move the plot forward. So I haven't taken like a great care to shoehorn in discussion of these, but you know, I like that it isn't afraid to digress a little bit. We also get this uh, great line here. I'd give my life to be dead is, is, is the line that brought this up. And uh, you know, I think that that really kind of cements the black humor of this movie. It's so sums it up. It's this guy who just wants to get out of his situation and that situation is being surrounded by death so by participating in it he would only be furthering his his stake in it
1: yeah i mean the movie gets to a point where it's like after a character dies like you can kind of feel the crew kind of sighing like like the story lets out a sigh like Ah, we're going to have to see this as a zombie now. Like, (laughs) we got to do it. We already started doing it. All right, here he comes.
0: Here we go. It turns out that the reason that the mayor's assistant has been eager to talk with Francesco is because the mayor raped her off-screen, like I said. But this cured her of her phobia, and now she's in love with him, and she's going to marry him instead of Francesco who gave himself impotence for nothing now and has in fact hurt himself because now she wants a man the way that he was. And it's very interesting to me that even though it is, like we said, not shown or anything, it feels like a deliberately trashy homage to the legendary Todd Browning and his 1927 silent movie, The Unknown, where a circus knife thrower pretends to be armless has them actually cut off to win the love of a woman who fears men's arms and only feels comfortable around him. But after he does, she overcomes her fear and agrees to marry the strong man who loved her as well. And this connection to classic horror, you know, we've seen it in his connection to Romero, we've seen it in his connection to this. I think there is a real love of where horror has come from that exists in this movie and I think that that is so fantastic and it's part of what I love about horror that you can see that that people are so proud of the shoulders of the giants they're standing on
1: yeah and it makes them it makes the makers of the art so relatable Right? Like, it's like... Uh, it, they like the things I like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're just dudes, you know? Like they, They're they they're like me. I can see myself... It's one thing to watch a movie and see yourself in the characters. It's another thing to watch a movie and see yourself in, you know, the directors or the people who are telling the story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They also really let you feel Della Morte's connection to reality becoming untethered here. The camera does four complete revolutions. Somebody called Tony Hawk because that's a 1440. <laughs> and it's honestly dizzying. The way that they handle it is really great. And it's especially dizzying because I watched it twice to count the second yeah. time.
1: <laughs> yeah, they do that all. And uh, also, like, it's a pretty long shot, too, in order to, to track around all that. Oh, and, like, yeah. You know, they, they nail everything they need to get.
0: And the character is walking around him as well. It's uh, just fantastically done.
1: I can imagine the director being like, we're just gonna we're gonna bang this out. We're gonna get all of this information because you know, like everything else, like the it's not important to the story so much. right? All we need to know is that he's losing again. He loses yeah. her again. And we that when you think of what happens the first time, it's so tragic the way that he loses her, this needs to be tragic too. So it is tragic, but it's also just like we know what's gonna happen. you know, so like they kind of like it, by not having cuts in that shot, they let it pass so quickly, but they do yeah. so much
0: gravity by doing that spinny trick. They sure do. Delamorte heads into town and gets drunk, where he meets yet another version of his lover. She and a friend ask him for a ride, and she gets it, but when he heads upstairs with her at her invitation and powers through the medication he was taking. <laughs> uh, very funny line. I thought this was great, though, and she's like, eh, it seems like it's not working. Yeah, right, <laughs> Unfortunately, while he rests, he learns that she was a prostitute, and Francesco goes wild. He gives up on love, and he burns down the house with her roommates and the woman still inside. The inspector comes to talk with him the next day, but it turns out that someone has taken credit for his crimes after killing his wife and kid, and that somebody is Franco, who tried to kill himself as well by drinking an I- by drinking a bottle of iodine, and is in a coma. Now, this feels like a huge huge out of left turn thing or out of left field thing and I love this next moment that comes from it where the inspector comes to talk with him the next day and he he visits Franco and he confronts him about the murder theft and he he says he gives him the check right he gives him the check but when he's visiting Franco he says like why did you steal this from me don't you think anything I do matters that even what is supposed to be like the ultimate crime of killing another human being, he can't even lash out against his surroundings in that way because someone else has taken it from him. Now, when a nun tells him to put out his cigarette, he blows her head off. (laughs) Just in time for Franco to wake up and say, everything is shit. A doctor comes in and Francesco plays off the dead nun by saying she's She's praying praying. down there. Very funny. (laughs) Before killing the doctor too, plus a nurse who comes in after.
1: See now this this scene. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Where it's like I don't, <clears throat> I don't even like register the humor in this because like this scene feels so important. Uh, it's so heavy. What's happening there? And I feel like we're beginning to understand. Like maybe they're going to reveal something we should have known the whole time.
0: Mm-hmm. Is
1: there even a delamorte delamore? You know, like this is a a great place to put that hacky twist in or whatever. Yeah, but. Uh, those scenes when he's shooting the people and he's not even looking, right? He just like blows people's heads off. And the stuff that he's saying is so funny, but I don't pay attention to it because I'm like, go back to Franco. F- talk to Franco, figure this <laughs> out. You know, like all those jokes and the silly stuff, like it just never played to me because I'm lost in the gravity of this situation.
0: Yeah. And I think that again, this is a moment where the surrealism is helping that because it keeps you feeling a little off balance here. You know, there's a large blood-filled instrument Just pumping blood. Not a normal blood instrument from a hospital, folks. (laughs) And then when Franco yells at him, he claims not to recognize him and yells at Francesco to go away. When the camera zooms out and it reveals nothing around them, you know, between the color of the lights and this and the layout of the stairs that he goes down, this hospital feels so not connected to what hospitals are supposed to be like
1: yeah right I wonder if if like that pullout where it's like you can see they're on like a stage or a set somewhere something yeah um feels very comic booky like maybe that was like they were I wonder sometimes if they're um, and the scene when he's walking down the stairs and he passes the inspector, that scene is so powerful. For yeah. It's so heavy and it's like so well done and unexpected. And
0: Yeah, well, yeah. So there's just a bunch of cool stuff happening that kind of forces you to question the veracity of what's happening as well. You know, the inspector says, there's a maniac up on the fourth floor. Oh, you have a gun. Great. You can defend yourself. And, you know, this plays right into that. Don't you think anything I do matters? He screams out a confession but is ignored as the extras, which this was a very active scene, the extras all vanish, and he feels completely isolated once again. It's just a really impactful scene. It's fantastic. He wanders around the cemetery shooting wildly and commiserating with the Grim Reaper's apathy and removed from society before getting in the car with Nagi to leave Buffalo the next day, driving recklessly. Delamorte almost kills a biker and does knock them over before heading to a tunnel that leads to what he says is the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, Nagi like says like yeah, like he's like don't worry, I'll get the next one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy, he's uh, he's out for blood. Delamorte is, but he screeches to a halt, cracking Nagi's head on the dashboard because the road leads to a chasm. There's no way out. The rest of the world doesn't exist, as he hypothesized earlier in the movie. It also looks like it's going to be the end for Nagi, so Della Morte loads the gun with two bullets, one for each of them, but he can't bring himself to shoot Nagi, and it starts to snow. Nagi wakes up and throws the gun off the cliff before saying in a complete sentence, Could you take me home, please? And Della Morte responds simply with, "Nah." and the camera cuts to reveal the two men standing in the snow globe like they were at the beginning, trapped once again. The end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is like, I feel so embarrassed to
0: say it, but like
1: I get chills hearing you just describe that. (laughs) I love this movie. I love this movie.
0: It's great. It, it really is. And this feels like a great time to talk about philosophical implications of this and what we got from it because this to me pulling out to the snow globe really serves to reinforce the nihilism that is really present in this movie to me. And it feels like a very youthful nihilism. And the surreal detachment I think also plays into that. But the fact that it's snowing when they're when we're still in like real world And then that it cuts to the actual snow globe. You know, when you think about a snow globe, the scene resets and you shake it again and it all goes through and then the scene resets. And so many times for Francesco, this happens and it happens and it happens. And he is constantly miserable and he's constantly having these things taken away from him and he's constantly losing his love. And the futility of of bashing your head against a situation that is unwinnable because of the very nature of the environment you're in. You know, I think that there is just such an, uh, an interesting worldview on it because it's, as far as I'm concerned, nihilism doesn't have to be so upsetting. You know, if, if nothing matters, then that means that you can live your life to the fullest. You can celebrate the little moments because that's what you get. And to me, this feels like someone trying to say you should be enjoying these moments. You know, there is so much of, of the the comedy of this movie that plays against the darkness of it and the death that surrounds them. The life from death theme that runs through it. I think quite makes you question what is life and I think that it's vitality and joy and laughing. You know, I think that so much of that plays into what makes life worth living. And uh, and the fact that he is ignoring it and focusing on the darkness around him—that's him banging his head against it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, like, like, do you does that does that set up to you that is this all going to happen again? And now they're just switched. Like this story is going to yeah. be told again. And mm-hmm. Nagi is the cemetery man.
0: Could be. Could be. I think that, you know, the pieces may change, but it's uh, the same story for sure. Um, And, you know, I think that additionally, Francesco being the guardian of the past, if you will, as the groundskeeper of the cemetery and being impotent pairs really well with, you know, one of the zombies we see is wearing an Italian military from World War II uniform, so he is a fascist, and corrupt bureaucrats like the mayor coming back up. Because Francesco is the representation of the past, and he's impotent, people refuse to learn from history, and they can only hold these things back for so long. Ooh. They're constantly coming back, and despite his best efforts to keep them in the ground, these issues keep rising because he can't procreate. People won't learn from the past.
1: Do you think anyone else in Buffalo is aware of what's going on in the cemetery? Franco.
0: He believes him, he says. Yeah. Who knows if he actually believes him, but...
1: And it is kind of like a rumor, right? There's a rumor out that the dead come back.
0: Right, because Claudio's girlfriend does come and she says, you know, does this actually happen? Can I see him again?
1: Yeah, because that sort of explains to me maybe why the chief of police or that detective doesn't go after Francesco, because he knows that... No one would want this job like he mm-hmm. if he if he understands that this guy's job is not to dig graves but is to shoot the people <laughs> the corpses when they come back to life and he's doing yeah. that right like then it's like well we would never get anyone else to do what he does so right. like, we need to keep him no matter what cost well
0: yeah it's worth the sacrifice of some of the community in order to keep him on board there yeah.
1: This was the other day, I was talking to a friend of mine, Rob, who really loves this movie, and I was saying that... I'll just try to, I'll try to read it, what I sent to him. But I said, I always try to understand what the message of that movie is. It does so many things conventional films don't do, and somehow they all work together. I think the message is the journey of an artist... He doesn't make, Francesco doesn't make any decisions, doesn't make any big decisions for himself for like 70% of the movie. And the only decision that he's really making is to, he shoots the zombies. And even that's avoiding a problem and it's convenient, right? He's just kind of like, like whatever's easiest to do. He's taking the easy out. He lucks into love for the first time. She's the only person in the world that we've seen in the movie. Other than that old lady (laughs) who comes by. So it's like the first opportunity that he can, he has, he falls head over heels for her. But he right. didn't go out to find her. She came to him. So he doesn't get what he wants because he didn't seek it out. The world gets bigger with each instance of the girl. Mm. His world gets bigger and he's going out into the world. And he becomes more jaded and more unsatisfied and more callous. So by the end... When he goes completely nuts, he's done being pushed around disrespectfully. He decides he's gonna make a decision, he puts effort into it, he works, and then when it's over, no one cares, no one acknowledges it. And I mean, this is a really negative read of it, but like maybe it's also like Suave's kind of like career. Like he he kind of sat in the passenger seat on the on the shoulders of giants, working on these movies that would become, you know, these and now this movie, how hard is it to find this, to watch this? You know, it's like yeah. Sematary Man is like a very, it's a literal telling of the movie of Sematary wow. Man.
0: How appropriate. The medium is the message.
1: Dude, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was something that I, I had thought just when I watched it most recently.
0: Yeah, I think that that, uh, that clicks for me. I think that I can certainly see it. And the beauty of this movie is that if you look for that, if I came to it and watched it again and I was like, I'm going to look for a way that I could support this argument, I bet I could find a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And if I came to it with a different perspective, I bet I could find a bunch of ways to support that, too. And the undercurrent of the message, whatever it is that's catching on you that day, I think that's what makes this such an interesting movie. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels like a great segue into the final part of our show, Joe, where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start.
1: All right. What does a good horror movie need, right? It needs some... We need some sh- shooting. We need some violence. We need some gratuitous nudity. We need a handsome leading actor. We need a gorgeous leading lady. And I would say this movie does all that stuff to, like, the maximum degree, right? Oh, yeah. You know, like, when you're picking a character, when you're going to play Dungeons and & Dragons and you get to a sign, like, you only have so many points you know, like this movie puts it all on red. It's just like, look, we're gonna get, <laughs> we're, we're gonna. Uh, it's it's a movie. They're shooting a zombie in the head within the first like two minutes of the movie. Yeah, that's, that's the normal world, and then everything else happens. Uh, it's it's really like the sensational stuff about a horror movie is like the the background of this, and what it does is it tells these really bizarre and weird stories that are so fun. They're so. Silly! It's beautiful to look at. It scratches the parts of my brain that a lot of horror movies don't do. You know, to the point that you were just saying, like sometimes even just watching this kind of feels like I, like I've I've accomplished something. Like I've done something
0: kind of creative just by watching and
1: thinking about it.
0: Yeah, it's chal- it's a challenging work. You have to really think about what you're watching.
1: And and as we discovered when you were talking before, I forget about what specifically. I to rewind and listen. But when you enlightened. A detail about this film that i had not picked yet and like i said i've seen this movie so many times mm-hmm. i feel like every time i watch this i pick on something new something else speaks to me there's just it's just so dense mm-hmm. but it is truly i i believe it is truly a work of art it sets out to make a movie and what it what it ended up being is is so much more and so much more interesting to me the depth of the movie is as deep as i want it to be yeah not not every horror movie, not every movie does that. As a matter of fact, a lot of movies are trying so hard to not do that, to not be ambiguous and to not, to not kind of like give your, leave nooks and crannies for your brain to kind of like wander in,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it does ask you to engage with it. And so many movies are just talking at you. And this movie really invites you in, in a way that is beautiful. You know, it asks you to not only enjoy the surrealism and the comedy that's in there and the fun costuming and everything, which is out of this world, but for it to do all that and then really ask you to consider several philosophical implications that it brings up. You know, there's so much in this movie about the desire for more life outside the village, life beyond death, someone to love and share your life with. There is so much begging to be explored in this movie that you almost have to watch it multiple times. You know, I'm not surprised that you keep finding new stuff because it is so packed with little things to pick up on and to dive into that the rewatchability is just through the roof. And the fact that I do think it is funny and also has some incredible set design, just absolutely outrageous, means that it's a movie that I want to go back and watch. It doesn't just have the capability, but it's something that I actively look forward to. And the fact that it has so much of the past while still modernizing it in a really unique way is so fascinating to me. All of the history behind it leading to sort of this interesting last gasp of this era of horror is is just fantastic. And and I like Giallo movies a lot. I love Argento in particular. I can get behind Baba and the uh, the Fulci poking out your eye. <laughs> no, I love that shit. But this brings that forward in a way that I think a lot of them struggled to you know 90s Argento is not a lot of people's favorite and for this to sort of pick up that gauntlet I think it just is is a remarkable achievement and that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made. Joe thank you so much for coming on man this was an absolute delight and please tell people where they can find you on social. If you're doing any shows or anything coming up, they can check you out at... Yeah, at the Joe Moore
1: on Twitter's probably the best one, but on all social media, I'm at the, the Joe Moore two O's in more
0: check them out. Very funny stuff. I liked what I watched on YouTube. You can check out some too, right? So there you go. As far as my plugs, you can find me at little horror, PHL on Twitter, Uh, That username applies pretty much everywhere, but especially on Patreon, where you can find all kinds of fun bonus episodes about things that might not fit squarely into the best horror movie ever made, even though we still call it that, like Resident Evil 2, the video game, and Freaky Friday 2003, starring Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. So, these are both the best horror movie ever made, and you can hear all about our explanation for why, only on the Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> right on. check that out rate and review if you're enjoying the show because it really helps thanks again joe what a delight thanks for introducing me to this movie dude
1: yeah thank you george it was, it was a lot of fun
0: bye everyone